Welcome to Ogla Flanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Brolachon Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles. the website, feel free. Series 6, Circling the Toy. Episode 6, Warrior Women, The Training of Cúchulain. Verba Skóhiga. Amea er oingale, aradosa ulgovud, uathud freheed nimlever. Cudded horeth kailfeder, furded broged bivsader, bed the halk cool bayman, cruach freshroth shadende. Tithus fithach foivoravnas, fethel feola, fair chlesiv. Ferba the breg bradfider, broged the thuith tisider. Trian chithach coig de hish, kichish the boor melada. Bahoin frishlog shirdachra. Shifis the fwil flond hanvan, fernav illiv ildlachtiv. Cuan dialilis luskanav, lean the fedded ildavav. Iller fwila firfidar, fert chwyn chulin. Case for allid nan chridi. Dal de thaliv detherva, detherin brodirg brishfither, brothach fritund tregtachthe, frishin meiland mondernach, bellend de keid klesavnach, kichid biehid banchwire, boig se medhav skio Arad osa otherlige, ocht fri hechte ar garke. Ad hiu fir feith finvenach, fridon coilne ard burach. When you are a peerless champion, great extremity awaits you. by you. Your sword will strike strokes to the rear against Shadender's gory stream. Hard-bladed he will cut and conjure the trees by the sign of slaughters, by manly feats. Cows will be carried off from your hill. Captives will be forfeited by your people, harried by the troop for a fortnight. Your cattle will walk the passes. You will be alone in great hardship against the host. Scarlet gushes of blood will strike upon many variously cloven shields. 
A band of parasites that you will adhere to will bring away many people and oxen, and many wounds will be inflicted upon you, Cahullan. You will suffer a wound of revenge in one of the encounters at the final breach. From your red-pronged weapon there will be defeat. Men pierced against a furious wave, against a whale equipped for exploits, like a whale performing feats with blows. Women will wail and beat hands in their troop. Maeve and I will boast of it. A sickbed awaits you, in face of slaughters of great ferocity. I see the very glossy Finvenock in great rage against Don Cunha. In this episode, we finally get to meet the remarkable warrior women, Skahok and her daughter, Urhok. Yeah, and don't forget Ifa as well. This is an unusual group of women who play a major role in Cúchulainn's career. We're working from Kuna Meyer's edition and translation of Tokvark Evra, The Wooing of mm-hmm. Emer. Uh, but the entire saga of Wooing of Emer has quite a complicated <laughs> manuscript history. Yeah. So brace yourselves. Rudolf Trenizen says that the tale was first compiled in the 8th century and it was part of the fabled Kindrama Schnechter. Oh, the great lost book. The great lost book. But 8th century is really the oldest strand of mm-hmm. our literature. Written literature. Yeah. The first part which we looked at in the last episode, all about the actual wooing, was refashioned in the early 11th century, and that's found in our friend Leverna Hidra, L.U. But the parts that we're looking at today, they were rewritten in the early 12th century, but that version has been lost. (laughs) So we have to put this second half of the saga together from a third version, which was compiled not long after the second version, and it's an attempt to bring the various tellings of the story together. Now, I think that's interesting because it shows us that this tale was widely told mm-hmm. between the 8th and the 12th centuries and that the parts that we're looking at today, because it's a composite, it makes use of oral as well as written variants. And those oral versions are likely to have gone back well before it was written down, even in the 8th century. Absolutely. And definitely when you have something like a piece of Rusk poetry, mm-hmm. that's a good indicator. You know, we are getting ahead of ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we should come back to this later. Would you mind recapping the story? (laughs) Yes. Previously on Cúchulain and Emer. Cúchulain has been sent on a quest to complete his training and to prove himself as a fitting husband for the eloquent and quick-witted Emer. Cúchulain has been set up by his putative father-in-law, Fergal, who was not at all impressed with the idea of Cúchulain, or the madman of our macro, as he called him, uh, as a son-in-law. And he sent him east to Alba, hoping that he will and to the one cooked up by Peleus when he sends Jason off to find the Golden Fleece. Yes. A way of getting rid of someone you don't want. Absolutely, yeah. Cuchulain sets off for Scotland. Kuno Meyer's text says that in some versions of the story, he did not go alone. Yeah. Loiger the Victorious, Concover, even Colonel Kernock, some say, went with them. Yes. And (laughs) 
tasks. The first one is that they have to blow a leather bellows, which is set under a flagstone with a small hole in the top. Now, presumably they work it with their feet because it says it causes serious burns on the soles of their feet. They would perform upon it till their soles were black or livid. Now, what's going on here? It's clearly a representation of blacksmithing. Yeah. Are they learning how to make their own weapons? Well, perhaps they have to understand the craft of weapon making before they can learn to use the weapons themselves. It's a good idea. But the first fighting feat that Cuchulain learns is a bit more familiar to anyone who has encountered his hero stories. And this is one of the spear feats. It says they would jump and perform on its point. It seems as though they were highly practised in, in staff spinning. Yes, yes, <laughs> the old fire dancing. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think they set them on fire as well? They might have. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, the usual happens. Durnala, who's Dovnal's daughter, falls madly in love with Cuchulain. Now, Durnala, in a later medieval version, is called Durnmoir, and both of those mean great fist. And there's one problem as far as Cullen's concerned. Yes, and it's nothing to do with his pledge of faithfulness to Emer. I should actually explain, at the end of our last episode, we did say that they swore faithfulness unto death to each other, but it's not quite like that. What they did was to swear faithfulness unless it would actually cost them their lives. Oh, right, so they give themselves a get-out. Oh, yeah. They're not that stupid. But the problem is that Donola is just truly ugly. Her knees are large and her heels turn forward and her feet turn backwards and she has big grey eyes and her face is as black as a bowl of jet with a strong forehead and surrounded by bright red hair. It's quite dramatic. It is rather very striking, but Cuchulain has no intention of sleeping with her and naturally she's a bit angry with him about that and swears to be revenged on him for the slight. Now, I don't think Cuchulain is very much bothered. No, but I really can't blame Dernola for her reaction. Eventually, Dovnal is satisfied with Cuchulain's progress but he suggests that he could do even better if he went to train with Skahuk, who is living on an island, it says in the east of Alba, but maybe it's westwards from Alba. Well, traditionally, Skahuk's dune is on the Isle of Skye. Yeah, and that's not in eastern Scotland, is it? No, it isn't. Skye is one of the larger islands of the archipelago of the Inner Hebrides on the western coast of Scotland. Now, off goes Cuchulain with his companions. Yeah, but at this point it gets really confusing. There seems to be a literary attempt to conflate all the possible variants. Mm. So there's four of them set off to find Skahuk. But the story says that suddenly, Concover, Loigra and Connell find themselves back at Arwen. Yeah. In other words, thrown out of the story. And <laughs> something has to explain this, so it must be magic. Yeah. They can't find a way back. And they're now stuck and separated from Cuchulain. And that, of course, is the point, that Cuchulain is now isolated and alone. And he's much less likely to survive without his comrades. The texts suggest that this vision of Evwin that traps the other three is the vengeance of Dovnal's daughter. But it's also pointed out that this unexpected effect could be the work of Fergal, who's really determined to minimise Cuchulain's chances of returning. He doesn't want to keep his promise to let him unite with Ema. No. And so we've got Fergal the trickster using magic in his own right. It seems as if it's just a way to get the others out of the story because they're not supposed to be in it in the first place. 
There's certainly multiple variants. Yeah, there's a very good paper by P.L. Henry, which is entitled Verba Scotica. It's in Celtica 21. But it does give a very good account of what's happening here. And now this section that we're looking at, of course, doesn't exist in that oldest strand of the story, the version one. We only have the third version, mm-hmm. which is based on a second version. The lost second the version. The lost second version. And of course, this third version is an attempt to harmonise different elements and that's in a other telling. E- that's a good example of it. It is. Yes, but the vision of Evan is a good example because it really... ...extraordinary warrior ever and that he's the only one who gets special training with Skahuk. But on the other hand, that such special status totally unbalances any conflict in the time. Mm -hmm. And so... This device is created where a few other elite warriors are said to have received at least some of the same training as Cúchulain. Now, as well as balancing things out a bit, it also makes them foster brothers. And that deepens the personal relationship between these characters and thereby it deepens the ultimate tragedy. Mm, so the storyteller at some point has developed a explanation to sustain them. Yes, exactly. Well, Colin keeps on going, but the text says that he feels sad and gloomy at the loss of his companions, and I don't really blame him. He knows where to find Skahuk, so he just doggedly continues. But there's an odd inclusion here. The text says that when he saw he was astray and ignorant, he lingered. Now, do you think this is a comment on his sensible prudence, i.e. <laughs> staying safe by careful observation of his immediate environment? My translation of this strange inclusion, as you put it, is that he waited then where he wised his burden or his errand and his lack of knowledge. And I see it rather like a child lost in the wood and suddenly overwhelmed by the enormity of what he has to do and not knowing which way to go. That's nice, it's- it's a human touch. It is, yeah. And you do get these now and again. We've commented on, on it before with Cúchalán. While he is on his way to Skahox, the next thing he sees is a terrible great beast like a lion coming towards him. Now the beast just goes on ahead of him, but sometimes turns back to stare at him as if he's wanting him to follow him. Yes. And the beast doesn't attack him. Yeah. Now, I wondered if this was his otherworld progenitor, Loth the Lynx. Now, I'm quite pleased. I found out recently that the Lynx was wild in Ireland right the way up to the ninth century. It's a good idea. Yeah. So they would have been present and recognisable. It's certainly a a cat of some kind. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Now, Cahullan takes one of his usual impulsive actions. (laughs) He leaps onto the beast's neck and rides on his back. It's a nice image, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But he doesn't try guide the cat he just lets it take him wherever it wants to go Mm -hmm. and of course that's right because it's taking him across a border between the worlds it's a recognizable psychopomp guide in this case reminiscent of the arthurian questing beast or the white deer that finn and his men often follow across Mm -hmm. the world's borders or even alice's white rabbit yeah (laughs) it is a large cat and (laughs) yeah cat rabbit (laughs) While they're like this, they travel for four days until they come to some kind of village. It's close to an island where there's a group of boys waiting. And the boys laugh at the rough beast acting like a beast of burden. But Cahullan pays no heed to them. He just gets off and thanks the beast politely. Yes. Yes. Now, I think the boys 
They were mocking the beast, really, for abasing itself to serve a human. And Cuchulain's response is to kind of point out his own prowess in working with this fearsome wild beast. Now, having got this far, we suddenly revert to another version. (laughs) Yes. So he's no longer reached the coast and we get a completely different travel route to Scarhawk. And in this version, when he goes on his way, he comes to a large house in a great glen. Now, not unexpectedly, there he meets with a beautiful girl and she welcomes him as if she knows him. He doesn't recognise her, but she tells him that they had both been foster children with Ulbagon Saxa. Now, I don't quite get that. What does that name mean? Well, best I can make of it is Great Little Saxon. It's definitely okay. a Saxon. So not local there. No. <laughs> now, there's some interesting connections there. Yeah. But anyway, he accepts refreshments from her and moves on. Here we have a, a quite a familiar fairy tale folk motif. The unknown family member as helper. It's quite traditional, but more usually involves meetings and help from older aunts and uncles or grandparents yes. or so on. But, of course, the importance of the relationships between foster brothers and foster sisters is heavily stressed in the whole toy tradition, the whole Irish tradition, really. And here it is again being reinforced. Mm-hmm. The next person he meets is a young man called Yohu Barche. Is this another relation? And what clues do we get from his name? Well, Yohu is a very familiar forename that we've come across plenty of times. The Barche, that's quite interesting. There is a mythological cowherd who's named Barche, but it's also used as an ordinary noun, which seems to mean the bull or stag that leads the herd. Yeah, the leader of the pack. Yeah. It could... <laughs> Almost be a, a name for Cahul himself. Yes, yeah, in some ways. Well, Yaku offers a similar welcome to him, and Cahul asks to know the way to Skahakstun. Which, sense. of course, the youth can tell him. He has to go across the plain of ill luck which lies ahead of him. He says that on the first half of the plain, his feet will stick to the ground. <laughs> it sounds familiar. It sounds like deep mud. <laughs> Very likely. On the second half of the plain, the grass will be sticky as well. But this time, it's that the grass will impale the soles of his feet on its blade points. <laughs> Nasty. Sounds like first mud, now thistle. Yeah. <laughs> Equally familiar. Yeah. And they really can impale the oh, soles definitely. of your feet. <laughs> There is, of course, a solution. The youth gives Cuchulain a wheel and tells him to follow its track across the first half of the plain. And then he gives him an apple and tells him to follow the ground where the apple runs in order to reach the far end of the second half of the plain. Mm, Now, the wheel and the apple as guides are not unfamiliar. Mm. Now, it may just be a coincidence, but two of Cuchulain's warrior feats are the apple feet and the wheel feet. Yeah, so... Uh, could be a, a reflection of that. Mm. The youth also tells Cuchulain that there is, after the Plain of Ill Luck, another large glen. And in this, there's only one narrow path that goes through it. But this glen is filled to the brim with monsters sent by Fergal to destroy him. Ah, so this is the version or the variant that includes Fergal as antagonist. Yes. The youth also hands Skull and something of a spoiler. Yes, well, we're used to spoilers. So he foretells everything that is going to befall Cuchulain. All the downsides. Yeah, all the nasty stuff, the hardships and the events of the cattle raid and doom and gloom. You know, this whole section is, is really full of familiar fairy tale motives. Yeah. The young hero meets a series of helpers who offer solutions to impossible tasks. Yeah. Now, 
generally the hero or heroine has already been able to offer help to others previously met, sometimes animals and mm. so on, thus proving their worth. Uh, Cuchulain, on the other hand, appears to need to prove nothing, but that's what you'd expect. Anyhow, Cuchulain makes it through all of these dangers and continues on, following Yahoo's instructions all the way across the plain of ill luck. Mm-hmm. And that's that done. Yes. And now we're back to another version. Mm-hmm. It, this is the one, the version where he's just got off the beast's back. Yes. So we're back on course for that version. Yes. <laughs> and there, quite rightly, he's arrived. He's right by the camp of Skulls. It says scholars, but that doesn't make sense. Dalty, which is fosterlings or students rather than scholars. So he's crossed either Scotland and maybe he's crossed Sky. Yeah. And he's now reached the place where he has to get to the final island. Yes. And he must first pass, he's told, the Bridge of the Cliff. Yeah, now I have no idea why Meyer has translated this as Bridge of the Cliff. It's Throchad Nanalta which is the bridge of the fosterlings. He's just had the term Dalta in the previous sentence. Yeah, but he translated that as scholars. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know why scholars and cliff are the same word to him, but I think the bridge of the fosterlings is a bit more prosaic. Well, it makes sense in terms of what's going to happen next. Yeah. Because this bridge is the challenge that he must personally take to reach Skahuk's doom. Yes. Uh, uh, there is, of course, a problem that no man can cross this bridge before he has achieved valour, he is told. Well, once again, the term that Meyer has translated as valour is Gashgad, and that's a lovely old Vanva compound of Guy, which is the spear, and Shkiath, the shield. And put together, they mean weapons. So rather than achieving valour, I think it's about the formal bestowal of arms. Now, Cuchulain, as we know, took arms for himself. He did not wait around to have them bestowed. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Yeah. Before, in his childhood tales, he just demanded arms yeah. rather than earned them. So what he's saying is you cannot you cannot reach Skahuk's Isle mm. or her dune until you are ready to take arms. Yes. So when you are ready, the teacher will be there. Yes. That concept. Yes. But, of course, now he has to pass this somewhat symbolic bridge yeah but then they always are aren't they i mean whenever is a bridge just a bridge <laughs> and this one certainly has overtones of being a rite of passage yeah it's this is certainly no ordinary bridge it has two low ends and a high middle and whenever anyone steps onto one end the other end strikes and throws him prostrate that's <laughs> My translation, because I think Meyer's kind of made a bit of a mess of this whole section. But nevertheless, it seems like some sort of seesaw or yeah. swing bridge or even just a crystal maze challenge. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> you always end up in the water whatever. Yeah, yeah. However, it is a tough challenge yeah. because Cahulam fails to cross the bridge three times. And what's worse, while he's trying it, all the young men jeer at him. Yeah, well, it could even be worse than that. They seem to actually satirise him. Now, we have come across Cahulam having to be mocked on a number of occasions. If you think back to Fleth Rickran, mm-hmm. when he is going up against the Genesee Glinna, he fails three times. And it's Loig, his charioteer, who has to really lay into him verbally in to, order to get him to go back. I have to remember, he's just a schoolboy, really. Yeah, he is. The way that he meets this challenge is to jump onto the end of the bridge and then immediately make the chariot fighter's salmon leap so that he gets onto the middle. And this means that he can leap all the way to the other side and the bridge doesn't actually have time to raise itself 
before he's safely on the island. So he solved the enigma, the problem. There's one way of doing it and he's worked it out. Yes. And finally made it to Skahux Island. We ought to sort out which island are we talking about. He's crossed Skye. Now, the etymology of the name of the Isle of Skye is itself kind of misty. Mm. The meaning of the Gallic name for the Isle of Skye... Which is on Talon Skithenok, yeah? Thank you. It's not, it's not very clear. There have been various etymologies suggested. There's the winged isle or the notched isle. There's also Roman references. Now, Ptolemy's famous map, which I think is the 2nd century AD, mm. refers to the island as Sketis. Mm. But that's obscure and all that can be suggested is an early Celtic word that means winged. Well, the winged could be suggested by the kind of ragged coastline of the island yeah it's all that piney for the fuel yeah yeah (laughs) but the linguistics just don't bear that interpretation out the Norse name for the island was Skio, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I, I may not no be. No Norse. But it just means misty. Yes, and that would then give rise to the modern Gallic name, which is Elona Hyo. And it's also, of course, been suggested that the island takes its name from Skahuk herself. Or indeed, the Skahuk takes her name from the <laughs> island. It's obscure. Definitely obscure. <laughs> Now, we are going round in circles in the mist, yeah. so that gives you the name of the Isle of Skye. But, of course, it is a misty island. It's yeah. a very strange island. Just briefly, I was there, oh, it must have been a good about uh, 25 years ago mm. now, and I, when my daughter, who's now grown up, was only three, and we were we were in a camper van, and we got up one morning and made our way to Portree for breakfast, and on the way, suddenly, out of the mist, deep mist, and this was about March, this shape reared from... from almost from the road ahead of us. Mm. And it looked like a great dragon's head wreathed in cloud with its uh, horned crest and its face. And we all just got out of the van and stared at it. Yeah. And it still looked like a dragon. <laughs> and as the mist cleared away, we realised that this was the, the great hill. It's about two and a half thousand feet high and it's the old man of store. and mm. very famous in its own right. But that morning, it was the dragon's head. Yes. And to my daughter and I, it's still the dragon's head. Yes. It, uh, it does sound rather like the faith fear that old fairy mist that means that you're definitely getting to another world the whole location was a bit like that yeah even poor tree where the only thing i remember is a fish and chip shop <laughs> where we met janet the piranha <laughs> make of it what you want <laughs> now the shortest crossing between sky and the mainland of scotland is actually only about 500 meters mm. not very far when i went to sky there was just a ferry a very quick ferry But there's a bridge now, although as far as I know, it doesn't tend to throw people off. But I don't think we're talking about that bridge from the mainland to the Isle of Skye. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, whether it was a bridge between Scotland and Skye or a bridge between Skye and Doonskate. Yes, the ferry crossing was from the mainland onto the Isle of Skye, and that ferry crossing is on the southeast of, of the Isle of Skye. Mm-hmm. But it's a traditional site of Skahuk's Doon mm. is on the seaward side of a peninsula in the south of the island Mm -hmm. now the medieval fortress named for skahug is on a rock at the end of a promontory yes it's on a rocky stack which i suppose effectively is a small island a very small island yes but it would be easy to visualize skahug's swing bridge there yes so that does sort of answer the question that i posed before about which direction cuchulain has gone in he has gone east from ireland to scotland 
not to an island off the east coast of Scotland. Which wouldn't make sense. No, exactly. So the Isle of Skye is to the west of Scotland, but this promontory is sort of eastward from Skye. So. Um, <laughs> Skye is a funny shape. Yeah. So that it's on the west side, but it's east of the rest of Skye. Exactly. So. Oh, go and look at a map. It's <laughs> yeah. too complicated to explain. Yeah. Well, he's arrived at Odoon now. Yes. And strikes the door with his spear. He overdoes it as usual, and the spear goes right through it. Yes. Skahuk, as it happens, is out at the time. But when she hears about this visitor, she sends her daughter, Uhuk, to go and find out who this young man is. So here we have the daughter of the house being sent out, out to check on visitors. Yes, again. yeah. Uh, before we go on with this section of the story, perhaps we could have a look at the names of this mother and daughter pair, because I think they're quite interesting. They certainly are. We've already talked about the fact that Skahuk's name has been connected, although perhaps incorrectly, with the name of the island. Now, ska was always one of my favourite words in Irish, because it means both shadow and reflection, and also mirror. Mm. Now, it does come to mean a phantom or spectre, as do most words associated with mythological Irish women, seemingly, but it can also mean a shelter, covering protection, and equally fright or fear. Sky certainly represents a, 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 a typical other world location. Yes. And like all other world locations, it both mirrors and reflects the normal yeah. world. Therefore, it's hardly surprising that a woman should be the teacher of the greatest of warriors. Yes. A practice that unfortunately is not commonly found in the temporal world of the period, as we would like to think. Yes, I'm afraid not. Now, it does seem, though, that this idea of a woman warrior teaching the young man could be found really quite attractively scary to men of the period. I think it is still somewhat attractively scary to men now. Okay, well, let's look at the name of her daughter then. Yes. Now, Uhuk, interestingly, I think, does have a relationship to the Gennady Glynna that we've met before. If you remember those sort of shrieking terrors of the valleys also get called Uatha. Now, Uath is a word that means fear, horror, terror, and that which causes those emotions. Lyquitska comes to mean phantom or spectre. What did I say about all these mm -hmm, words associated mm -hmm. with mythological Irish women? It can seem to mean earth or clay or mould, but it is clearly an important concept because it does represent the sixth letter of the Ogham alphabet. And that gives it a certain status. And it's the name of a tale type that we find in the medieval lists. Well, the tale type of supernatural horror is just as, yeah. just as popular today as it ever was. Exactly, yes. I'm wondering that in this case, could she reflect the fear of the unknown that must be overcome in the rites of passage to manhood? I mean, fear of battle, fear of humiliation, even fear of adult sexuality. Well, I think we were talking before about Cúchalán and his very naive attitude very young. to sexuality in particular. Mm. Uhug goes to take a look, but she doesn't speak to Cúchalán. Now, she does like what she sees. She thinks he's a bit of all right. Yeah. So off she goes to her mother to report back. Now, what I quite like in this passage is that it says she sees him but doesn't speak because she's overwhelmed by this desire that his shape has ignited within her. <laughs> 
okay. Yeah. She is somewhat fulsome in her praise, though. Oh, definitely. And she and her mother discuss them really quite freely. And Uhak even generously offers that her mother take first turn to sleep with the young man. <laughs> Skok thinks, well, that's not a bad idea. Not unpleasant, but only if it's okay with her daughter. Oh, very polite. Isn't it? It just feels like a real pair of women talking <laughs> in the midst of all of this kind of male fantasy of women warriors in chainmail bikinis. Um, yes, it's like if everyone plays a D&D style game, yes. you take a perfectly good piece of armour which covers a male figure perfectly head to toe, yeah. you put it on a female character and suddenly it's a chainmail bikini. Yeah, it just shrinks down it to does. nothing. You very rarely get uh, representations of women warriors which are like the head of the Tsulu guy. What, you mean middle-aged and... Uh, and rather wild <laughs> and not to be taken S- by any man. Tsulugi, just remind yeah, me. Yeah, that's from Chelmsford <laughs> oh, 1, yeah. 2, 3. Now, if you haven't seen it we highly recommend it it has fantastic entertainment value and very good historical research but it's great fun it is yeah (laughs) anyway let's get back to Urhog yes Uh, she's the one who approaches Cahulam with food and drink and as the text says looks to his gratification and (laughs) makes him welcome yes now she's said to be in the guise of a helper in this part and the later glossators can't really wrap their heads around that the glossator adds that she is disguising herself in order to get power over him. Sneaky <laughs> um, woman. Whatever the reason for Urhok's behaviour, Cahulan's response is crass and immature. Mm. Now, he just makes a clumsy grab for her and breaks her finger in the process. <laughs> yeah, now, understandably, the girl shrieks the house down and the entire household run to help her. And this includes a young champion who's... Claude Katz. He attacks Cuchulain and they fight. Now, Cooker already knows all of the famous feats of Skahawk's school, but clever Cuchulain copies whatever he does and ends up winning, at which he cuts the head off this champion. Now, Skahawk is really fed up about this. Yes. She's not at all pleased with the loss of her champion cat. Yeah. So, Cuchulain agrees to become her champion in the place of the cat. Yeah, and Lovely. isn't that just such a perfect mirror to the story of the child Shadender and the meeting with Cullen's hounds? Especially because he's going to take the place in the household of this conspiracy of clawed guard cats. Now there's other world symmetry yeah. for you. It's what we'd expect and there it is. Yeah, as well as women taking the roles of men, cats are taking the place of dogs. At this point, Cullen has essentially set ground rules of his relationship with Skohuk and vice versa and his training in the very widest sense can get underway. Well he's demonstrated his potential ability he's also wormed his way into becoming part of the establishment and I suppose even part of the family after all he's become the cat. Yes, <laughs> you certainly could say that. I mean, Urhok, in spite of Cuchulain's initial rather clumsy grab at its consequences, she's still determined to have him, and she comes to him with some advice. And Kit, or Cat, Permission, or possibly Cat, and they're training by a great yew tree. Now he's to approach her using his new special feat, the Chariot Fighter Salmon Leap, and he's to set his sword between her breasts, that is, threaten her life, yeah. and demand that she give him his three dearest wishes. Yes. But Urhok has her own agenda, and so she tells the youth what his three dearest wishes actually are. Yes. 
The first of these is that Skahak is to teach Cuchulain fully and without neglect. Mm-hmm. Now, the second one is a bit tricky at first. It's to allow Cuchulain to take her without bride price. Now, what are we talking about and who are we talking about? Well, you see, it's not clear whether it's Uhak or Skahak in this setup. And the word that's used for I suppose their union is Arnatham, which is a kind of a formal betrothal, which usually involves paying money to the woman's family. And some of that money even reverts back to the woman herself. But it is also related to a term which is about paying a woman to have a sexual relationship with her. So, so whether it's Uhuk or Skahak yeah. himself, he's saying that he wants to have a relationship with her without any money. Yes. <laughs> and the third of these wishes is that Skahak should use her poetic talents to prophesy his future. And this is exactly what the boy does. He points his sword at her heart and demands his three wishes. She tells him that he may have his wishes if he can speak them in one breath. And he just does this. Now, this is a recognisable formula. And we've met these three wishes, the three Drindrusk, before. If you remember in the wonderful Fergus MacLeja, when he grabbed the three Luggerpon... In a load of old cobblers. Yes, yes, in that one. They say to him, Anavun and Anavun, life for life. And then he asks for his three wishes. And we'll meet that Anavun and Anavun later with Aifa. Now, this formalised request for three boons, I think it's of particular interest. The three wishes motive is a powerful one, and you find it in fairy tales all over the world. But the thing is, we all know that asking for these three boons often causes serious and unintended outcomes. Yes. In other words, you don't get away with it. It never works. Yes. It is so common that I feel that the request for three wishes, narratively speaking... that you use the term Drindrosk. And that does contain as its second syllable the word Rosk, the chant, the poem, the very old poetry form. Yes. Does this imply a direct connection with poetic utterance? I think it does. It seems to, in this context, mean a sort of formalised utterance. And Rusk, as well as referring to this non-syllabic ancient poetry that we love so much, it can also be used to mean a legal maxim. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because the oldest of these law texts are preserved in all these Ruskata because they were being orally learned and retained. So Rusk does become a bit of a byword for almost like a a proverbial legal maxim. Maxim. The drind part is to do with the quarrel. So it seems to be a formal utterance that's said in the context of a duel. Mm-hmm. So asking for quarter or saying you surrender, basically. So it is basically a formalised uh, chant that would be understood by people hearing this as meaning something quite powerful and important. Oh, yes. And it's something that you definitely don't break. If somebody asks for their life, you don't then cut their head yeah. off. That's interesting in terms of this three wishes and how it's come to be represented, whether it's given us by a genie or a magic fish or (laughs) something else. But it turns up so much and it Mm. may explain why it always goes wrong. Yes. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you. Mm. Do you think Urhok may be teaching Cullen this 
form this formula this formal chant as part of warrior etiquette well i was wondering whether what she was gently teaching him to do is not to cut off the head of every enemy that you can win a fight without actually killing the other you person you can ask people to yield and yes. if the right formula is given yes. then it's not a loss of honor oh absolutely but also and that's what he needs to learn he really really does yeah he he needs to learn not to just immediately decapitate everybody <laughs> well anyway let's go on yes now kunamaya's text says that in some version after these three Drindrusk are given by Skahak, that Cúchulainn and Skahak go off to the beach to have some sex. <laughs> so it probably does refer to her rather than Uhok. Yes, in the relationship. She can get away with this and he's not even going to have to give her a present Exactly. <laughs> But she then gives him a prophecy of his future as he's demanded, doesn't she? Yes. Now, in the version that we're working from here, the prophecy is not given until later on in the story. But the poem is known in lots of sources as Verba Scothiga. And that's the poem that we opened this episode with. And this is probably the very oldest strand of this entire tale, as is so often the case. And as usual, it holds the essence of the story. Yes, it does. Well, I think we should concentrate on telling the story for now, after we have got to the interesting part. (laughs) He's achieved his current goal, and he's become a pupil of Skahak. Yes, and he also has Skahak, and possibly Uahak as well, for a regular bed partner. So much for his vows of fidelity to Emer. Yeah, and he hasn't even been threatened by death. You will have sex, or or die. Poor Emer, waiting for the brat as usual. Yeah, well, the tale seems to agree with that sentiment at this point, because now it returns to Emer. You get a, meanwhile, back in Ireland... Dot, dot, dot. It says that a certain famous man who lived in Munster, Lugged, the son of Nos, son of Alavac, who is a renowned king and a comrade of Cúchulainn's, goes with twelve chariot fighters of the high kings of Munster to woo twelve women of the men of Ross. And all these women were previously betrothed to other men. Now, when Fergal, the trickster, hears about this, he takes himself off to Tara and tells Lugged that the finest girl in Ireland is living under his roof and unmarried. Of course, Emer. And Lugged is naturally intrigued. So Fergal, sensing his chance to get rid of that madman from Evan, <laughs> betroths Emer to the king. But Emer is once again a match for her scheming father. So when she's brought to sit by Lugard before her wedding day, she takes the man's cheeks in both her hands and tells him that she's actually in love with Cahulun, but the Fergal is against it. And she gently points out that it would be a bit of a loss of honour for anyone else to take her as his wife. Now... and quickly, tail between legs, rushes off home again. He is terrified of Gullet. Yep. <laughs> the madman of our. <laughs> now, the taking of the two cheeks I find interesting. Yeah, it does seem to be another formalised exchange. There's quite a bit of it in this There text, is. Well, there, there is in a lot of the stories, yeah. I think. It's like making an oath statement and that the gesture to go with that is the taking of these cheeks. Now I'll just read what she says when she has his two cheeks in her hand because I think it sounds nice. She says, for fear enoch agas anavodam, which means on the truth of honour and life for me. Hmm. So this is saying enoch, your honour price is at risk 
and I feel like if you make a statement like that while you are holding onto someone's cheeks, it's almost like a formal handshake or saying, hand on heart, this mm-hmm. is the truth. Mm. We then cut back to our previous story and we cut away from Ema. Yes. We now meet another important woman warrior, and this, at last, is Ifla. Oh, yes, and she is going to have a rather significant role in Cuchulain's future. Well, as the tale tells, at this time there was conflict between Skahawk and the noble warrior woman Ifla. Uh, their troops were just about to face each other in battle, and it seemed that Skahawk was not willing to risk her wonderful new young protégé and bedfellow <laughs> in battle so she'd given him a sleeping potion to stop him from joining in against her will. Well it would have been rather hard to prevent Cuchulain from jumping into the middle of it otherwise. It reminds me of the way that there was a concerted attempt to keep his other world progenitor Lou out of the Battle of Moitura for a sim- similar reason yeah. and they couldn't contain him either. No it really doesn't work any better with Cuchulain. This potion is supposed to knock you out for 24 hours but it only lasts an hour with Cuchulain. So after a nice little afternoon nap, he's off with Skahawk's two sons, and they go into combat with three of Ifa's warriors, Kur and Kat and Krifna, but Cuchulain de- defeats them all single-handed. Just a moment. Now, I thought that that was the names of Skahawk's sons. Oh, Kur and Kat, yes. And her champion as well. Oh, yes. Skahawk's sons were Kur, Crooked, and Kat, Permission, before, and the champion that Cuchulain killed and took the place of was Kohar Krifna, the conspiracy of Claude Katz. These three names in this passage are given after an edon, a dot i dot, which sometimes, but not always, indicates a gloss. But I think what's actually happening here is that there's a confusion of the various strands, because the next encounter is between Skahuk's two sons against the three sons of Esha Enkina. And my suspicion is that our version 3 compiler has two different sets of names in these accounts. And so he puts them both in as two separate incidents in quick succession, rather than two different versions of the same incident. And we've met that before in Fled Brickroom. Yes, we have indeed, yeah. Now, the two sons of Skahuk are going to battle against these three sons of Esha Enkind whose name I interpret as a form of bird head. <laughs> um, and her son's names are Kira, which is a, a crest or a comb, and Bira, which is a point, and Balkna, which is firm. Oh, Kohulan the cat among the pigeons. <laughs> I think it is. I do think so. Now, Skahuk, who doesn't know that Kuhulan is on his way to join in, is very anxious because her boys are outnumbered by those three warriors of Ifa's. And she also knows that Ifa is probably the toughest warrior in the world. But da, 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 da. here comes Cahullan to the rescue and Skahuk is much relieved as her enemies fall before him and her sons are saved. Aww. But now we get to the boss fight. <laughs> Ifa versus Skahuk. But Cahullan is there ready to act as Skahuk's champion in this great challenge. But just for once, before he rushes in and attacks her, he stops to think. Using a degree of strategy, he seems to be finally learning something. Yeah. He asks for advice rather than ignoring it or having advice thrust upon him and then ignoring it. <laughs> he asks Skahuk what Ifa values most. Her chariot and horses, he's told, without hesitation. Mm. And armed with this fact, 
Cahullan faces this seriously skilled warrior. Yes, and it is a major fight. Both of them are now very well versed in all the warrior feats and they use them freely. But it's still not long before Aifa has shattered Cahullan's weapon so that it is no longer than his fist. What? Cahullan losing? Not quite. Cahullan then cries out... Aifa's charioteer and her two horses and her chariot have fallen down in the glen and they have all perished. Look behind you! But this does distract her enough that she looks round and Cuchulain grabs her by the breasts and throws him onto his back and carries her back among his own troops and then he throws her to the ground Waffly. and points his sword at her chest. <laughs> he doesn't kill her though, he's got that far. But yes, he seems to have learned that. When she cries out life for life, Anavun and Anavun, he asks her for the three wishes. Three Dringras. And just as happens with Skohok, he must take them in one breath. Yeah, now I like the language here. It's quite formal and you can hear a rhythm in it if you'll just bear with me while I read it. Anavun and Anavun a Cúchalan al she, but three drinrot damsa al she, rot beard avol na tiestas lat anol al she. It's that's really good. Yeah, you can hear can the hear rhythm that of it. It just is such such a good pattern. Yeah, but no one tells him his three wishes this time. He has to make them up for himself. Yes, and these are the three that he asks for. The first is that Ifa must give hostages to Skahak so that she never again attacks her. The second is that she must make an alliance with Cúchulain in front of her own household tonight. And the third is that she must bear him a son. Hmm. Well, she promises. Yes. And then the text says that he went off with Aifa and slept with her that night. Well, might as well get that over with. So well, let's, let's move swiftly on. In time, Aifa is able to inform Cúchulain that she is pregnant and she seems to have full knowledge that the child will be a boy. She tells Cahullan that she will raise him and send him to Arwen in seven years' time. Cahullan leaves a gold thumb ring, although other versions say a bracelet, and tells her to send the child to him when the ring fits his finger. Or the bracelet fits his wrist. And he tells her to call the child, the boy, Conla. Now, he also makes some very strange prohibitions about the child. He says that the child should not give his name to anyone that he should not yield his path to anyone, and that he should not refuse combat with anyone. Now, I can't believe that Cahullan just demands that his son keep quiet about his identity mm. just because he's concerned about what Ema might say. It's a bit late for that. It is rather late for that, isn't it? But this whole episode is very redolent, I think, of the conception of Bresh from Moitura, where you have Eru and Elatha as strangers who meet on the beach and conceive a child, and then Elatha leaves Eru with the gold ring and says, mm. send the boy to me when he's seven years old, and he shall be called a Bresh. Mm. You know? But he's not told to keep quiet or fight anybody or not tell anybody. Yeah. Here is another moment of exactly how not to handle the situation. <laughs> and as we find so often, Cullen is making really bad decisions. Yes, and just more trouble for himself. Trouble for himself, yeah. It seems also to go along with that theme of betrayal of birth and child rearing and all of the proper procedures mm. around that that we keep on finding. And another example of a child who cannot survive the passing from one world to another, at least not survive into adulthood. Yes. Uncle Holland's in the same position as his son. Yeah. It's, and maybe warriors shouldn't mess with the poet's domain. <laughs> 
that's quite possible. Now, it is so clear, even though the term isn't used, it's clear that these are Geshe. And whenever you hear of a Geshe, you know they're going to be broken. And you also know it will have terrible consequences. And this fits in with the whole thing about the three wishes that it I was does. talking about earlier. Yes. That they seem to be in so many, not just the Irish stories, but in so much folk folk tale and fairy tale, that when you come across three wishes, you can be pretty sure that they're going to cause situations that are going to cause real trouble for people. And it's often, if the third one can't put it right, yes. then the third one will destroy. Yes. I don't wish is the one to undo the other two and that also happens yes. in certain folk tales but yeah it just fits in with what we're saying yeah. these three wishes are quite powerful they certainly are yeah but back to the present tense of our story but to go back to the present tense of our story Cuchulain returns in the morning to Skahuk's doom but on his way there he meets an old woman who is blind in her left eye she asks him to be courteous and not to walk on the road in front of her he objects, insisting that there's just no other path for him to walk on unless he walks right on the edge of the cliff. <laughs> but she still insists, so he leaves the path, clinging with his toes to the cliff edge. It's yes, a really good image, isn't it? It is. And this, of course, is all a ruse. The old woman, as she goes past, jumps on his big toe in order to try and get him <laughs> to fall. on his foot. Yeah, exactly. In order to try and get him to fall off the cliff. Well, he nearly does, but his salmon leaf feet saves him and he vaults back up and strikes off the old woman's head. Yes, there he is, decapitating again but this turns out to be Esha Einkina, who is the mother of those three warriors of Ifas that Cúchulain has just destroyed and she has come this way specifically to take revenge so on Cúchulain. You've got the mother bird, the cat finally killing the mother bird as well as the small pigeons. Yes. <laughs> Well, Cahoon then remains with Skahak, recovering from the battle. Yes. And the next piece of information that we get is a list of all the feats that Cúchulain has learned in his time with Skahak. These include the apple feet, the rope feet, the cat's feet, but not the cat's paws. Or the cat's meow. The salmon leap of a chariot fighter, the wheel feet, the breath feet, the warrior's howl, the scythe chariot, and the hero's twisting or binding around the points of spears. Well, that's quite a list. And that's only for starters. We're going to record a special episode soon about these feats. And we're going to be talking with a good friend of ours who knows quite a good bit about medieval swordsmanship. Yes, and so rather than just having me banging on about the language, we're going to pick his brain and speculate on the kinds of techniques that a fighter in early Ireland might have used. Let's get back to the story. After this, Cahullan gets a message to say that he's wanted back in Arwen. And so off he goes. But before he leaves, Skahak, as promised, uses her imboss forasna to create a poem telling of his future. Now, the text of this poem is not given in the Kudamara translation. We are using it as published in a paper about Verba Skahiga, this poem, by P.L. Henry from Celtica 21. So it's his translation? Yes. We did say that we would return to this poem that we used to open the episode. Yes. And there are some very significant details in what I suppose is this earliest compressed telling of the story of Cahullan. Absolutely, as, as so often is the case. Now, essentially, the details of Cahullan's future life and career are pretty much all there. They're more or less all included. 
And cattle are placed at the heart of the poem, as you would expect. Mm. Now, in fact, Cahullan is told that he will stand alone against the herd. So it's almost used as a metaphor as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, particularly for the kind of the warriors and the tribes on each side, if mm. you like. The herds. Yes, exactly. But there's also a sense of the whole world being out of joint. That sense of order breaking down. Harried by the troop for a fortnight, your cattle will walk the passes. And I suppose this could say that the cattle, the wealth of the province, will stray untended, although it could also be a foretelling of the way in which Cahullan will hold the fall during the debility of the Ulsterman. I think it really speaks to both. Now, about that debility, I'm sure there will be people saying, hang on, it says he holds the fords or the passes for a fortnight, and isn't the debility of the Ulsterman nine days? Well, Mm -hmm. we have covered this before, but just to reiterate, this idea of Neunden being a nine-day or five days and four nights, is really not specified. It's not clear. Even what the term Neunden actually means is disputed. So uh, the length of time of the ability of the Ulstermen is... It's open. It's not set. And so interpreting things on the basis of how <laughs> long it is is a bit problematic. And other specific events are referred to. I mean, for instance, the Schergliger, the, the sick line that's yes. mentioned. Yes, it is. I think that some of the most surprising lines actually come toward the end of the poem, and in particular that part that talks about a band of parasites that you adhere to will bring away many people and oxen. Skark is really, well, scathing towards Cuchulain's people. She's definitely not pro Ullad, and she's probably not pro Connachta either, to be fair. No, she's judging both sides, I think. Yeah. So the poem is talking about people taking fertility from the land without putting it back or without returning mm. it, creating a wasteland. Quite an ecological message, if you think about it. Yes, I would, I would say so. And it also goes back, of course, to the story of the two swineherds again. Instead of sharing the resources, as what they were doing at the, the beginning... Mm competing resources as what's happening to them at the end of the story just leads to destruction absolutely on all sides no winners now this poem is of course another example of the wonderful Ruskata which we keep on banging on about because it's so great but I did notice there's even a line that translates as necks will be broken and that pretty much that exact line comes in the Morrigan's Rusk, the kings arise to battle, the poem before the Battle of Moitura, where she's rallying the troops. Mm, She's also acting as a herald there. And of course, heralds and foretellers of news, whether it's good or bad, end up as Cassandra figures. And it happens to the Morrigan and it happens to Scott. Yeah. Misfortune tellers always end up getting a bad press. They do, rather. (laughs) So when you ask people to tell your future, it's not all going to be good. That's the problem. (laughs) Exactly. Now, of course, we will put up the full poem and its translation onto our website. As I said, it comes from this paper by P.L. Henry in Celtica 21. We'll put up a link to the whole paper there. It's a bit academic and linguistic, but the introduction, I think, is very, very helpful for Mm. understanding this whole story. We found it useful. Yeah. Now, I suppose we should continue on to the last part of the story. Yes, we are getting there. Cuchulain takes himself a ship, presumably to the Irish mainland, though his ultimate destination is Evan. Now, there's no mention of his farewell to Urhok. Whatever she thinks about the situation remains unrecorded. Probably just as well. He still engages in a few adventures on the way home. For instance, he ends up in the House of Ruad, King of the Hebrides, on Samhain night. 
and this is such a significant and convoluted story that we really need to come back to it another time, I'm afraid. In brief, this is the first meeting between Cúchulain and Dervagilla. She's the daughter, apparently, of Ruad, the King of the Hebrides. Yeah, doesn't she have her own full story? She does, and that's Azed Dervagilla, the violent death of Dervagilla, which, by the way, in modern Irish gives us the name Dervla. But there's only one other added story that concerns a woman's death, and that's Azed Medva, the death of Maeve. It's a story about Maeve meeting her end thanks to a piece of hard cheese. Yes. <laughs> we talked about that back in series three on Dinhianicus. Yeah, it was the third episode episode that we called The Well and the Cheese. So I think the full story of Dervagilla also deserves its own episode. Hmm, I think it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> but just to summarise, this is yet another dalliance that gets Cahullan into trouble. By the time he leaves the Hebrides and heads back to Ireland, all he's done is put poor Dervagilla off for 12 months. Yes. And I wonder whether Emer will have anything to say about all of Cúchulain's foreign conquests. <laughs> to get back to our current story, Cúchulain finally arrives back in Owen and tells of his adventures. And when he's rested, well, he sets off for Fergal's dune to find Emer. Of course, but Fergal is still... ...can't even get close. Now, isn't... That one of Ema's predictions, mm. the one she made earlier. He had to stay away for a year. Yes. And now that's what he's had that, to do. Yeah. We come to the battle for Ema. Cuchulain leaps into his special scythe chariot and sets off for Fergal's stronghold once more. This time, he makes it all the way and uses his salmon leap feet to get inside the dune. And now there's a major battle. He deals three blows and eight men fall from each blow. Only one man escapes from each nine. These fortunately are Skiver and Iver and Cap, Ema's brothers. Yes, and these names once more are interesting, as you might expect. I mean, for a start, there's that cat again. Mm. Can't shake the cat, but seemingly. Iver is nice here. It's a yew tree. And if you remember, when Cuchulain first came across Skahak, when she was teaching her students, including various cats, they were doing this at the at the foot of, or even perhaps inside, a great yew tree. A skiver is a little more difficult to analyse. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be a Latin borrowing meaning pepper, skiver, pepper. Mm. It could be related to the word skibbit, to move. It could just be there for rhyming purposes. It's it's really quite tricky. No, it's almost as though this is the battle in the real world, the mm -hmm. mundane world, that is foreshadowed by the battle with Kua and Ket and Koha Krivna. It's also another of Ema's predictions. Cahullan deals three blows, each of which strike a Neunver, sparing one person in the midst of each. You're right. And it does seem that Emer was concerned, therefore, with her brothers not being killed in this inevitable confrontation. But she hasn't made any such provision to protect her father. Oh no. <laughs> Running away from Cahullum, Fer Fergal leaps onto the ramparts of the stronghold and falls. He dies. It feels to me as though he has attempted the chariot fighter Salmon Leap, but quite literally falls short. Well, he hasn't been trained by Skulk, has he? But I wonder whether Fergal's death was part of the plan all along. Wouldn't put a pastor. <laughs> now he's got rid of Herb 
rather unpleasant father, Cahulan takes Ema and her foster sister with him, along with two loads of gold and silver. Yes, and we now get a rout. This whole section of Cahulan's bloodthirsty prowess. Mm, I suppose this is what the audience originally were waiting for. Well, yes. One interesting element in this section is that in Hienicus, places get new names now based on Cahulan's exploits. Yeah, and what's interesting about that as well is that Emer is playing a very important role in creating those names. They seem to come from the comments and the praise that she gives after each incident of mass murder. This section also fulfills the last of Emer's predictions as Cahulan kills a hundred men on each ford from Alvina to Brega. Which would suggest that Cahulan's interpretations of Emer's predictions do hold some water. But I do still think there are other meanings in Emer's predictions that Cuchulain didn't fathom. Of course, it might also be the medieval compiler trying to out loose ends. It's so hard to know either way. This second half of the tale is so much more fragmented than the first half. Mm. And the last section of this fragmented tale could be entitled Brick Crew Makes Trouble. <laughs> So finally, Cahulan brings Ema back with him to Awen. Of course, she's made most welcome. Here comes our old friend, Brickru Nevthengad, he of the poison tongue. And he somewhat disingenuously says, Truly, Cahulan's not going to like what happens tonight. <laughs> After all, Concover has a perpetual right to have the first night with every new bride. <laughs> you can just hear everybody going, Oh, did he have to mention that? We weren't <laughs> going to say anything. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And now he's said it. Something. <laughs> of course, when Colin hears what Prickroo says, as expected, he grows so mad that the cushions on which he's sitting burst and the feathers fly around the house. <laughs> Concover has to do something, so he sends Kukulan out to bring in all the herds from Schlieve Fuid. Well, 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 give Cathfad a chance to try and find a diplomatic solution. Mm. Cathfad points out that. Cahulan will kill Concover if he sleeps with Ema. Concover will lose his honour and status if he doesn't. So what are they to do? Mm. By the time Cahulan comes back towing his herds, which comprise of cattle, pigs, stags, birds, anything, all bundled together, just anything that moves he gathers up. Well, clearly, Cahulan's ability to tell animals apart hasn't got any better. He's a bit distracted. <laughs> but at least Cathfad has come up with some sort of satisfactory compromise. Yes. Now, the compromise is that Emer is to sleep that night with Concover, but Fergus and Cathfad will be with them in the same bed and they will protect the honour of Cahulan while Concover can retain his gesh. So and what's more, the whole of Ulster will give their blessing if Cuchulain agrees. <laughs> and that's what they do. Concover pays the bride price for Ema. Well, since her father's now dead, it's Concover who's standing as authority over her in the land. Cuchulain's honour is satisfied and he sleeps with his wife the following night. And they did not separate after that until they both died. Success! And the text ends with Cuchulain being made the chief of all the youths of Ulster. And finally, there is a long poem which names, well, pretty much everyone who's ever been in Ulster. Well, what do we make of all this? There's one question for discussion I'd mm -hmm. like to put to you. Do other world women count? Well, you mean in terms of uh, Cuchulain is allowed to do what he likes as long as it's somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Well, we did end the last episode with Cuchulain and Emer swearing fidelity to each other. Yeah, unless it would mean their death. 
which seems to have given Cahullan some sort of wiggle room. <laughs> He's certainly taken it. The whole of this episode is a long series of encounters between Cahullan and a variety of meetings and frequently matings with women of all ages and levels of status. Yeah. The women he encounters, if we put them in chronological order, yes. are Dovnal's daughter, Donala. Mm-hmm. There was a warrior woman, Skahak, and her daughter, Urhak. Yes. Both of them. <laughs> of course. The warrior woman, Ifa. Yeah. And Dervagala, the daughter of Ruad. Yeah. Now, he turns down Donala, sleeps with Skahak and Urhak, has a child by Ifa, and contracts to marry Dervagala. <laughs> now, is this because... I've nearly finished. Okay. Well, it may be true for a post-Norman medieval audience that sexual fidelity is only important for women, or that his relationship with Ema is to have a higher status and values than the casual matings, although pride prices are a part of the arrangements with both Urhok and Dervagavilla, or just that his training takes place completely outside the temporal and mortal world. Right. Well, let's have a look at those. First off, that point about sexual fidelity. Now, in the terms that we think of it, that really was not at all important in the earliest Irish stories, either for men mm. or for women, we have talked about how there is a legal obligation in terms of who looks after a child, mm-hmm. but it's not about you only ever sleep with one partner. Bearing in mind that most of this tale, its structure, its characters, is among the earliest strands of surviving Irish literature that we have, going right back to the 8th century. And even the most recent elements of this second half of the tale are still pre-Normand. They were up to the early 12th century. So, in other words, pre-1169. Well, in that case, why do he and Ema agree to it all? That's what I'm wondering. And that leads us to another point, which is what you said about his relationship with Ema being of really a very different class, a different type to that with the other women. Even though there is the discussion about payment or bride price, we did see in that episode where it was either Uahuk, but more likely Skahuk, that Cuchulain made an arrangement with. There was payment involved in that, but it was this Arnathem, which Mm -hmm. it, it can be a payment for a purely sexual relationship. And that is a different type from the, the life marriage, the joining of two lives and two households. With all that matters in terms of status. And property. Land, property, yes. yes. Okay, then I'm still asking. How much can the other women be regarded as other world women to whom the rules, in that case, I mean status and etiquette, yeah. don't apply? And how much is Sky a physical location and how much are we to see it as another world location? Well, we have seen, particularly in all the Imrava, that many islands and very particularly islands like the Inchigal, the Inner Hebrides, where he meets Dervigala, were frequently equated with other world locations. Yes, Staffa and its equation with the island of the Pillars. Yes, uh, it may be that once he moves into these islands, then the normal everyday etiquette is no longer relevant. But let's see how this applies to each of the women in turn. Right. Okay. So, so we have Dernala. And she is put in there to be unnaturally ugly, the poor woman. However, she is able to exact a supernatural style revenge. Creating 
Cuchulain from his human companions. It does say, though, that mm. there's an alternative narrative that says that this was done by Fergal. And then there's Skahuk. Now, for a start, she's an amazing warrior, yeah. who in some of the narrative versions heads a training school, which is a source of all the super skill of most of the toy and tradition warriors. Yeah. It's true that Greek and Roman sources do suggest that particularly continental Celtic women might be fighters and certainly able to defend themselves in their homes. And we do have such uh, historical examples as Boudicca in England. Yes. That are no known specific historical examples of women specifically training male warriors. Yeah. Just as there ought to be. Yes. Well, Skark herself, though, is very special. She's there on this shadowy island. I mean, she holds these high poetic skills of the embossed forest now. And she's able to confer this aura of supernatural brilliance to all these warriors who encounter her or are trained by her. Her prophetic poetic skills gives her actually much in common with the Morrigan. Although, interestingly, she's very rarely directly equated with her. Let's have a look at Orhok. Now, she has much connection with sexual expertise. Mm. She has the freedom to act as she wills. And although she uses her wits to bring Colin to her bed or her mother's or both, <laughs> she doesn't attempt to hold on to him when he returns to the mortal world. What, she doesn't follow him home? No, she doesn't. <laughs> She's one of the few who don't. Well, very interestingly, while we just noted that Skahuk is not usually connected with Morrigan, there is an indirect connection between Uahuk and the Morrigan. We've discussed before these creatures called the Uathet, the horrors, closely connected, often in the same breath, with the Ganadzi Glina, these furies of the Glen. And these creatures, the Uha, the Ganadzi Glina, who very nearly defeat Cúchulain in Fled Rickran, become connected with Morrigan in later glosses and glossaries, often by way of the classical furies. They are shriekers in the dark. They're so fundamental and elemental that Uath itself is part of the Ogham, as mm. I said earlier. Mm. And that is a grammatical periodic table. Yeah, and I think we mentioned it somewhere before in one of the podcasts that the Furies turn up when there is hubris, mm. when Gesh are broken, yeah. or that they have a prophetic quality, yeah. which means that what they say is going to happen. Yeah. And they're all about hubris. Yeah. Maybe there is a connection. Yeah. Or certainly a, a better parallel than we better might have parallel. thought. Yeah. Then we come to Eif. and it seems to mean a slope or a mountainside. Particularly, there's a place in the Dublin mountains that's called Buavaifa, which is Aifa's cattle. And these are these white stones arranged on the side of a mountain. Now, I mention that because this was a spot that was used for illicit assignations, most particularly in Fingal Ronine. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a heavy implication and everyone knows what you're talking about. There's also a possibility, though, that Ifa's name relates to the word oive. And that's an interesting word. It means semblance or appearance, the aspect or nature of something. Now, it comes to mean beauty or attractiveness when it's applied to women, and it comes to mean vigorous or prosperous when it's applied to men. But this idea of Ifa as a semblance, a seeming, I think that relates her, particularly to Skahak, with her yes. mirroring and her shadowing. Her ideal natural state, mm. her inherent nature. Yeah. I think... It 
It is interesting that there's that linguistic connection because Eifa also has a lot in common with Skoha. And Kukulin, though, specifically chooses to have a child by Eifa. And I wonder if he appreciates, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you can never tell with him, that because he has a semi-otherworld status, that this is the only circumstance in which he could possibly conceive a child. Mm. Uh, but his mistake is to arrange for the child to eventually enter the mortal world, especially as an adult. Yes. He, he can't be done. Yeah, and we can well, see not already... not in this circumstance. Yeah. I mean, he, he makes sure of that by the silly gesher that he lays on him. That just makes it absolutely sure. But with Aifa, I feel there's a chain of association that starts with this very powerful, wonderful warrior Aifa, that through this connection of uh, illicit assignations at places like Buiv Aifa, that she ends up in the role of wicked stepmother in the Clenna Lear, the children of Lear. That's where Aifa comes from. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, and the children there cannot be allowed to stay in the mortal world. They have to be taken out of it as swans. Yes. So it seems that Aifa is reduced from a boss fighter to a wicked stepmother. Yeah. Well, we could talk about that a bit more, but maybe not today. <laughs> maybe not. We could definitely keep talking about that one. I think I could. Yeah. <laughs> so let's have a look then at Dervigula. Uh, the the encounter between Kukulin and Dervigula is such an involved one that, yes, we are leaving it to a future episode. We promise we will get there. But there's a couple of maybe quick points that we can make here. First of all is just to remind us about the Inchigal the Inner Hebrides, which is where she's come from. And there are so often other world locations in the Irish tradition going right back to being one of the places that the Fuvra come from mm, mm. and right the way through, as we said, into the Imrova. But the other thing I thought was curious is that Dervigal's name literally means daughter of Fergal, even though in this story she's presented as a daughter to Ruid. And that made me wonder... Is she an otherworld mirror to Ema? That's interesting. Mm. Well, maybe we should look at Ema herself. Yeah. Now, she is not an otherworld woman, though she is connected to the Fovera. Mm. But she doesn't seem particularly otherworld in this context. No. In the context of this story. No, she's the one on this side, I would say. She does have these great poetic powers of foreknowledge. But it is interesting that her particular skill and her prediction seem to relate very much to her relationship with Cúchalan. And that's quite different from Skahuk's Imbos Forosna, which effectively predicts, I suppose, the overall shape of the great battle to come and the result of the time. She only predicts what it is that will make it possible for her and Cúchalan to get together. Exactly, yeah. So in her response to Cúchalan's chat-up line what, about... the weapons rack? Yeah. <laughs> She says that no one comes to this weapons rack yes. who has not saved one in nine. And that's exactly what happens in the final battle for her hand. Cahullan kills eight men in each of three nines. The last three are her brothers. Yeah. Now, she might have forgiven him for the death of her father, who has been acting, to say the least, as a bit of a tyrant. Yeah. But maybe not for the death of her brothers. Yeah. And that just comes back to wondering whether the death of her father was really part of her plan all along. Oh. 
basically an incestuous abuser. I wouldn't be surprised. No. But in the end, Cahullan's fight for Ema is a physical one rather than a magical one. And he uses everything that he's learned. Their relationship is such that if he listens to her, she will be able to anchor him in the mortal world. Yeah. However, they'll never be able to have children of their own. Now, another point I wanted to bring up was the mirroring of cats and dogs. This is something I wasn't expecting. (laughs) Now, Cahulan is brought to the other world by a lion beast, which seems to be a big cat, and maybe, as you suggested, a lynx. Yes, maybe connected to Log. The bit that was most telling was Cahulan killing Skahok's champion, this conspiracy of clawed cats, and then taking his place in the household as the guard cat. But it's also worth noting that even in early Irish, cats have very feminine associations. The term cat can be used as a euphemism for female genitalia, much like it is in the modern world. So as well as the gender swapping with the women being in charge, it seems also that dogs and cats are swapped. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of cat names, yes. including possibly two of Skahak's sons, definitely one of Ifa's young warriors, as well as one of Ema's brothers. Yeah, they're just everywhere. And what's more, one of the feats that Cuchulain learns is the clash cat, the cat feet, and not and the cat's paws. We've often noted that uh, cats are guard creatures. Yeah. So supernatural cats, often found in caves, guard treasures. Which has certain metaphorical implications, mm-hmm. shall we say. <laughs> and of course, we had the wonderful bit of the guard cat being thrust among the pigeons. Suddenly we get birds in the picture. We've got Esha Ainkin with her bird head and uh, her sons, Kira with his crested comb and Beera, the pointy one. Pointy beak. And Burkna. Interesting. But that's not the only mirroring. I do see mirroring between Lou and Cahullan. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned several times that Cahullan seemed to be reflecting his otherworld progenitor, Lou. Yeah. For starters, the lion beast guiding Cahullan to Dunskahak. Cahullan managed to master all of the feats. Yeah, the Ildana. There's really just so clearly the parallel with the way in which Skahok tries to prevent Cúchalan from coming to the battle. As we said, it's so like Lug being held back. And the story of the Welsh Clow. Now, you know these stories much better than I do. Yes. Now, his mother, Arianrod, cursed the child at birth. Uh, she certainly tries to prevent him from achieving manhood. She won't give him his name, his arms, his wife. And it does, to me, seem to mirror Dectina's desire to prevent Cullen's birth herself. Yes, and especially that last time when there is an implication of incest. And I feel that Arianrod is also reacting to an incestuous relationship. It's yeah. not stated, mm. but it's definitely implied. We were looking at a few of these things and thinking a bit further on in the story, the fact that it's Slo has blood eye with made for him and Cullen runs off with Blonard. Mm. I'm starting to think there are actually more similarities between Cúchulain and Llo than there are between Lug and Llo. I think we'll have to watch out for this. Yeah, that's got to be one to come back to. Thinking more about it, this name mirroring, there's a lot of it, especially between Ulster and this narratively speaking otherworld location. I mean, all these sets of brothers, you can hardly tell them apart. There's Emer's three brothers, who are Skeever and Ever and Katz. We've got Skahok's sons, who are Coor and Cade and her champion, 
Kug or Krishna, and then we've got Ifa's warriors, who are sometimes given exactly the same name. But even more than that is this possible mirroring of Emer and Dervagilla, mm. the daughter awful, of Fergal. There is an awful lot of mirroring, yeah. but we have met this before. Yes. What we have here is that if the two worlds get out of line, a wasteland will ensue. This is what's happening in the Toyn, and that's precisely what happened in Cath Megatirid, mm-hmm. the Battle of Moitura. Yes, and there we found that the names of important Dodonan characters closely mirrored their Fovera counterpart. In some of the closest mirrorings were things like Ochtril with Ochtrilach, mm-hmm. and of course there was the Dodonan, and then on the Fovera side you had many Daydovmen. Mm-hmm. It was just so close it was impossible to ignore it was really marked and we're finding it here again i think so in moitura this the cycle of chaos and restoration is very much a natural and eternally recurring one Mm. but the optimism of the morrigan at the end of moitura really i can't find it in skahak's prediction Skahak says that Kaur is not going to be restored after the time. And worse than that, she ends by saying a band of parasites that you will adhere to will bring away many people and oxen. The future is not looking bright for either the Ullad or the Connachta. But for now, the young hero has won his bride. <laughs> and I really feel like quoting the words of Zeus at the close <laughs> of one of my favourite films, the 1963 Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> oh, the wonderful Harry Hausen. Oh, yeah. Marvellous. <laughs> And it goes like this. For the moment, let them enjoy a calm sea, a fresh breeze and each other. The girl is pretty and I was always sentimental. But there will be other adventures. I have not finished with Jason. <coughs> let us continue the game another day. <laughs> I don't think we could have said it better. <laughs> See you next time. Thank you for listening to Agalov Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.